Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Mewa Podcast. In this episode, we present the first part of Rosemary Krill's lecture, The Cotton Road. The talk was given as part of the Mewa Textile Symposium and was recorded live on October 24, 2007. In part one, Rosemary Krill explains how Indian textiles were exported to the Middle East and the ancient Roman world centuries before Europeans arrived on the subcontinent. Painted cottons and ecant-dyed silks were also sent to Southeast Asian markets, especially in Indonesia, where they were treated as precious heirlooms. If you've read anything at all on Indian textiles, you've probably read something written by Rosemary Krill. Her commitment to this area is deep, scholarly, detailed, and exact. For 27 years, she has been active at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and she is now Senior Curator, South Asia, in the Asian Department. She lectures worldwide, specializing in Indian and Islamic textiles and dress, and in Indian painting. In fact, so formidable is a list of titles under her name that Rosemary Krill's expertise and her publishing history could be termed oceanic. It has that kind of depth and scope. We are fortunate this evening in that we shall explore one of the seas of that ocean in some detail. These are the waters that formed the roots between India and the rest of the world, the waters that supported what I like to call the cotton road, sibling to the silk road, but supporting the trade of ecats, painted cottons, chintzes, and block prints. Please join me in welcoming Rosemary Krill. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, Tim, also for my lovely title, The Cotton Road, which I think is very apposite. Uh, As he said, we all know the Silk Road. I'm not going to be talking about silk almost at all tonight. We do get a little bit of silk, but not very much, because really what India is all about is cotton. Um, Now, my talk tonight, in spite of what Tim says, is not going to be terribly detailed. It's not going to be terribly in-depth, because we have a great deal of time and space to cover. You could say that this talk will range in date from 5000 BC to 1900 AD, but you will be relieved to hear that there are very large gaps in our knowledge (laughs) about that period. In fact, so large are some of those gaps that they add up to about 4,000 years. So, So we're going to be mostly looking at Indian textiles that were traded abroad from about 1000 AD or thereabouts um, up till the 19th century. Now we're going to start off with a very boring thing, which is a map. And I'm sorry, it's really boring. But um, I just wanted to give you an indication of the vast distances we're talking about. I mean, people talk about globalization today uh, as if it's something new. But we know that India was trading with... Mesopotamia, up here, in 2000 BC. We don't know for sure that they were trading textiles at that time, but what we do know is that in the Indus Valley, up here, uh, in places like Mohenjo-Daro, they were certainly weaving and dyeing textiles as early as 2000 BC. We know this because um, Mortimer Wheeler, the great British archaeologist, excavated dye vats there and even found a tiny piece of cotton which was mordant dyed red. 
Now, unfortunately, in testing that piece of cotton, it was tested to destruction, so it no longer survives. But, you know, we, we believe, Mortimer, you know, that, that it was dyed red with mordant dyes. And even at that period, the Indians knew how to dye with uh, the salts that came out of the earth in order to make a fast color. And until, this is almost unbelievable, but it's true, until the 19th century, there was nowhere else in the world that could really do that. So we're talking about a very uh, long period of trade over a very wide area. As I say, um, w the trade with Mesopotamia was certainly... Um, in more durable items like Indian seals and pottery from the Indus Valley. But we know that cotton was already being woven um, in another town uh, in present-day Baluchistan uh, down here uh, called Mehergur. And we know that cotton was being woven there in around 5000 BC, not because any cotton has survived, but because we know from the pottery that has impressions of woven uh, fabric on it. So sadly, none of that survives, but we have secondary evidence. So before talking uh, more about the areas to which these textiles were sent, let's just look briefly at India and um, concentrate just for a moment on the areas we're going to be talking about. Gujarat, a very important uh, textile area, for thousands of years and even today, as we know from um, the demonstrations that have been going on even uh, this week. Mostly we're going to be looking at the block-printed cottons that came from Gujarat, but also the Ikat uh, Patola. Any of you who were at Karen Selk's lecture last night will remember that she talked a bit about Patola, and we're going to be seeing those in their context as a trade uh, textile. Over here is Bengal, known for its fine uh, cotton, and we'll be looking at, um, at those a bit, a bit later. Uh, Surat here, I should have mentioned in Gujarat, it was the main um, uh, trading port of, um, of Gujarat, which took over from the very ancient town of Cambay when Cambay uh, silted up. Cambay was known in the Roman period for its hard stone beads, which were traded to the Roman world in huge quantities. Down here is the so-called Coromandel Coast, really from... Uh, Mosuli Patam down here, um, the coast of what is now Andhra Pradesh in, in India. And this is where the amazing painted and dyed cottons that came to be called chintz are from. We'll talk about chintz a bit later on, but basically a chintz is a, a cotton fabric that is hand-drawn and patterned by mordanting and resist dyeing. Although now it's come to mean a sort of printed floral fabric, um, chintzes are not printed there, hand-painted and um, hand-drawn and dyed. Just quickly to look at the other areas that uh, the trade took Indian textiles to, um, the, the earliest surviving actual pieces that we know of um, come from excavations or finds, we should say, uh, in the Middle East. Qusair al-Qadim here in Egypt, a very important site dated to the 10th, 11th century, and a lot of wonderful Gujarati block-printed fabrics have, have come from there. Earlier than Qusair al-Qadim, down here is a site called Berenike, and, uh, which is datable to the first century AD, and Indian sail cloth has been excavated there. So not decorative cloth, but a very utilitarian thing that we know was used uh, in the trading uh, vessels. We know that Roman cloth was popular in the um, that Indian cloth was popular in the Roman world from authors like Pliny, who um, 
complained that uh, the love of Indian muslin was impoverishing the, the Roman state. And, of course, it was the Romans that gave them these wonderful names like woven winds and so on. Now, a very well-known... I'm sorry, we're just slightly off the map here, but this says Egypt. And here is Cairo and Fustat. Fustat was the earlier capital of Egypt before Cairo was founded in the um, 9th century. And thousands of block-printed Indian cotton fragments have been found there. I won't say excavated because Fustat became Cairo's rubbish dump. And so things were just heaped up in Fustat and found on the surface or just dug up. So no datable excavations were carried out there because it's impossible to date a, um, a, a sort of spoil heap like that. Now, in the rest of Arabia, um, the trade was hugely increased, of course, by the Hajj, the pilgrimage. And uh, with the Hajj came these amazing fairs where people bought and sold goods from all over the Islamic world. And so Indian goods um, often were sent to Mecca for these massive fairs and Bengali turbans were particularly uh, traded there. Today, in Yemen, down here, and Oman, um, you still see Indian cloth widely used. In Yemen, I've seen fishermen wearing ikats from Andhra Pradesh, from Hyderabad, down here. Uh, in Oman, I've seen um, people wearing Kashmir shawls as, as turbans. So it continues. The Arabian trade mostly sort of got superseded by the trade with Iran in the 17th century when Basra um, became the main uh, port. And so it's sort of in the 17th century that the trade with Iran really, really took off. Um, but it never became as, as big as, uh, as the earlier um, Arabian trade. Uh, even as far as China, Indian cotton was more highly prized than, than Chinese silk at some stages just because of its rarity and, and fineness. But China didn't really develop a, a strong trading relationship with India. Now, the region that really was important is this area down here, what is now Indonesia, and to a lesser extent mainland Southeast Asia, Thailand in particular. But Indonesia, of course, um, became terribly important in the European trade because it was the source of the spices that the East India Company was, um, uh, the East India Company of both Holland and England was set up to um, barter for. And that was where Indian textiles really came into their own because the people in these islands, they weren't interested in money, they weren't interested in anything else except uh, Indian textiles as their um, means of exchange. So islands such as um, Sulawesi down here, uh, Java right at the bottom of the map, Timor, Flores in the middle, all these we still find um, wonderful uh, Indian trade textiles which were preserved there, having been used as um, heirlooms in, um, in villages. Right, enough of the map. I think that's, I think that's more or less covered the geography. I'd like to just sort of quickly say something about the, the types of um, what you might call indigenous textiles which were exploited, which were used as uh, trade items, and just to give you a sense of what they were in their original forms when they were being used in, in India itself. Now, this is a um, superb, very large hanging done in um, what is usually called the Kalamkari technique. This just means pen work. But it's basically the same as the, the chintz technique I just mentioned, which is hand drawing of the outlines 
uh, and then mordanting the red areas, then dyed uh, to make them red, and where it's blue, I'm sure you all know that indigo doesn't uh, doesn't need a mordant, but you have to protect everything else that you don't want to be blue. So it's a basically a combination of resist dyeing for the indigo and mordant dyeing for the red. When it's just used in the context of um, India, uh, I like to call them kalamkaris, and when they're used as trade goods for the West, um, I call them chintzes, but that's, that's just a, a sort of... Um, uh, differentiation to, to make it clear which, which one is talking about. So this is a South Indian cloth from uh, Andhra Pradesh, from what is sometimes called the Coromandel Coast, done in that same technique. And it was these artisans who were so skilled at doing these very refined patterns that were able to adapt their designs to all these different markets, whether it was Thailand, Holland, uh, Indonesia, using the same technique. And as we can see just from a couple of details, I mean, they're really remarkably beautifully drawn. Now, these were used for um, Hindu uh, religious purposes, uh, and they're very much like the wall paintings you see on Hindu temples in South India, the sort of strip cartoon effect, you know, with the stories told in registers. This is the Ramayana, the great uh, epic of um, Lord Rama and his... Uh, attempts to rescue his wife Sita from the demon Ravana. And so the story is told in a sort of spiral with um, the happy outcome of Rama and Sita in, in, the, in the center, but very, very detailed and beautifully drawn. Um, that was from southeast India. Now, in Gujarat, in the northwest, um, block printing was the sort of, as it were, staple commodity in terms of um, textiles. And this on the, on the left is a, a textile which I was delighted to see. A scarf in exactly the same design is being sold in the Maiwash shop by coincidence. So nice to see this continuity. Um, but this, this sort of duck design is something that um, has been around in India for many centuries. For example, in the Ajanta paintings in central India, which date from the 6th century AD, one of the few patterned cloths that's not just geometric is patterned with little uh, ducks. Not quite like this, but um, the duck motif is something that's been around for a very long time. Now, this is from Gujarat, as is the uh, painting on the right from a Jain uh, manuscript. The Jains are a, a sect not unlike Buddhism and date from about the same period as, as Buddhism, a few centuries before Christ. <laughs> and basically um, are committed to nonviolence, etc. And uh, they have a splendid manuscript painting tradition, which rather um, died out, but its height was in the 14th and um, 15th centuries. And here's a, um, a priest wearing a lovely um, dhoti of uh, duck designs. And uh, we'll see again later on some other Gujarati textiles which reflect that a style of Jain manuscript painting with this rather sort of wiry outline. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, duck print is that we found examples of it traded both to Egypt and completely the opposite direction in Sulawesi in Indonesia. So this was going who knows how many thousands of miles in, in each direction um, in, uh, in the medieval period. This one has actually been carbon dated um, to about 1510. 
and the this is one of the ones that was found in in, in Sulawesi, but it also corresponds very neatly to the the period of the uh, Fustat finds that I mentioned earlier on. A bit uh, a bit later on, Islamic uh, patrons, especially in the Deccan Sultanates of South and Central India, started to commission these same artists as did the. Uh, Kalamkari Ramayana cloths in southeast India to make very, very different um, pieces for them, but using exactly the same technique. So all these, like for example this um, rather lovely um, rumal or coverlet on the top uh, which is decorated with very sort of Persianate scenes could have come straight from a Persian painting rather than an Indian one. Um, the Deccan Sultanates had very strong links with Iran and so they, they, their decoration tended to be much more um, Iranian in, in inspiration, but using precisely the same techniques of mordant dyeing and uh, resist indigo uh, dyeing. And on the right is, again, another Islamic uh, client, if you like. Um, the, the Mughal um, period saw a huge eruption of floral decoration which carried on with the Deccan Sultanates and the Mughal Empire in the uh, 17th and 18th century. And here you can see these wonderful sort of sinuous flowers, again, done in exactly the same technique of mordant dyeing and resist dyeing, but to a completely different style depending on the, um, the, the patron. Now, as well as block printing and this uh, painting and dyeing technique, a lot of um, embroideries were also sent as export items. Not so much to uh, other Asian countries like Indonesia, but very much to the West. Um, when the Portuguese arrived in India in 1498, they very soon started uh, commissioning embroideries, which we'll see shortly. Um, the Portuguese arrived on the West Coast in Goa, settled in Goa and Cochin, then moved to Bengal on the east coast um, at, in, in the 16th century. And there they stayed until they were evicted from their base at Hooghly in 1630. And so what they were basing their um, export embroideries on were already existing techniques of embroidery like these two. These, these are 19th or even early 20th century um, pieces in the V&A. Called, this is called Kanta embroidery, and it's basically a piece of domestic embroidery which recycles uh, cloth. And not surprisingly, no old pieces survive because they're, they're basically used and used and reused to destruction. And so it's very rare to find a, a Kanta that's even early 19th century. So we can't show you something that was around when the Portuguese arrived in 1498, but this is the same tradition. This little... Um, uh, mat on the left uses a much denser sort of embroidery than the piece on the right, which is just a detail from a big bed cover. But it's both, um, they're both Kanta embroideries, which are a very simple running stitch over a multi-layered uh, cotton uh, ground. The finest embroidery that was used both in India and for export was the work of mochi embroiderers in Gujarat. Now, the mochis were originally embroiderers, um, uh, work, workers in leather, and they used a special tool to embroider on leather, this, um, a sort of chain stitch embroidery done with a, a hook. 
And even by um, Marco Polo's time, he comments on the very beautiful embroideries done on leather in uh, Western India. And the mochi embroiderers started to adapt their embroidery for use on cloth as well as leather. And this is the sort of thing they were doing. You probably can't see um, the, the fine stitches of, of this uh, bed, bed cover or floor spread, but it's a very immaculately done silk uh, chain stitch on cotton. Now, these were Gujarati embroiderers, but they were used by the Mughal emperors and by the trading companies for uh, export goods, and we'll see some of their, their work um, later on. Now, just to sort of um, return to the, the actual trade pieces, as I mentioned, the, the pieces found in the Middle East, are the, specifically in Egypt, are the earliest examples we have of, uh, of Indian textiles to survive. I mean, uh, one of the problems with Indian textile history is that there's no tradition of keeping old pieces. There isn't a tradition, for example, like in Europe of um, putting precious textiles in, in tombs. They, they're just destroyed or they're not seen as, as, uh, as worth anything because they're, because they're old. So very little in the way of old textiles survive in India. We have to look outside to Egypt or even to Tibet where a lot of old Indian textiles have recently been um, emerging and later on to um, Indonesia, which we will come to. Now, these uh, block-printed pieces are from uh, Gujarat, and they're done in uh, resist uh, printing technique. Now, Gujarat didn't do um, the hand-printing, the hand-painted Kalamkari textiles. All the ones that we find in Fostat are block-printed, um, very beautifully done, and they all keep to a very limited color palette with indigo and a, usually a red, a red dye and the undyed... Um, natural natural color. So these are some of the huge numbers. I mean, there are thousands of Fostart uh, fragments around in, in museums all over the world. Um, one of the largest collections is in, um, in Oxford, uh, the Newbury collection. Slightly later on in the Middle East, as I mentioned, uh, Iran rather sort of took over from uh, the Arab Middle East um, in around the 17th century uh, when Bandar Abbas and Basra started to really become very important ports. And so you can see these are very, what you might call, Islamic designs. On the left is what is obviously a, a prayer rug or a prayer hanging, um, and on the right a very typical sort of coverlet um, done in that quintessentially Islamic design with the, the central medallion and the four-corner quarter medallions, which is like a, it's like a book cover or something, isn't it? But you see it in, or a carpet, you see it in so many media in Islamic art. Now, the one on, in fact, both of these um, probably come from um, what used to be called Masuli Patam in Andhra Pradesh, what's now called Machli Patnam, um, on the so-called Coromandel Coast. And Iranian traders settled there very early on to, in order to commission pieces like this to send back to Iran. And then later on in the 17th century, um, printers actually started setting up workshops in Iran in order just to, to make exactly the same thing. And it's often extremely difficult to tell just by looking at a piece or indeed by doing anything else to it um, whether a piece is from Iran, especially Isfahan, or, or India. And there's much, uh, much discussion about how one could possibly tell the difference. 
Now, the trade to Southeast Asia is a huge subject, and we could easily spend a whole uh, a whole hour talking about that. A lot of different areas sent cloth to Southeast Asia, to what is now Indonesia. This um, extraordinary, uh, I haven't shown the whole piece because it's too long. It's about five and a half meters long, um, and it's been carbon dated to about 1340. Pieces like this, we don't know exactly what they were for. They obviously had some sort of ritual function. They were used... um, in rituals of house building and thanksgiving. And then they were packed up and preserved very carefully in baskets in the roofs of the longhouses, in, um, especially in Sulawesi amongst the Taraja people. Now, when these were first discovered not very long ago, people presumed, oh, well, 20th century, maybe 19th, because it had been never, uh, no one had ever imagined that an Indian textile from the 14th century could possibly have survived. But then um, carbon dating tests were done on several of them, and they all turned out to have this extraordinary early date in the 14th and 15th century. And so it appears that just from being kept away from rats or damp or insects and being kept in the rafters of the house and sort of smoke preserved, these things were able to survive for five, six hundred years, more or less undamaged. I mean, these things are in amazingly um, good condition. They're quite robust, they're quite thick, but they're very obviously uh, Gujarati uh, block-printed uh, designs. Now, there is this one is, is uh, block-printed, there's one or two of them are hand-drawn very, very un- unusually. And uh, we'll see another. Uh, this, this type, uh, also from Gujarat, is also um, an example of a design that can be either hand-drawn or, um, or block-printed. This one is a, a drawn one. It's a very, uh, very magnificent piece. Again, it's about 550 centimetres long. Amazing uh, life to it. And it sort of shows this wonderful row of dancing ladies and um, a sort of a, a couple in, in the centre. Now, I don't know if, if you cast your mind back to that Jane painting we saw next to the, the ducks textile. You can see that, again, that this is very much the same style with this sort of pointy-nosed, sinuous, wiry figure. And it fits absolutely with the date. Even if these things hadn't been carbon dated, we might have worked out that um, they must be um, of the same period as those wonderful paintings. Now, this is a a type of cloth that is found in quite large numbers, relatively speaking, in Indonesia, um, especially in Bali and in Sulawesi. Now, it's much less fine, much less finely done, and it's probably from a slightly different part of the Coromandel coast. Down in the south um, of that uh, southeast coast of India, facing Sri Lanka. Even today, you get a rather sort of basic form of um, uh, mordant dyeing, which is not as fine as the, the chintzes from, from further north. It's got some very small areas of indigo, but these appear to be painted on, so they didn't, they didn't go in for the large-scale resist dyeing that you get on the, the very fine uh, kalamkaris or, or chintzes. Again, this is just a detail. This is a whole long cloth showing the battle between Rama and Ravana. Here's 
Ravana with his with his ten heads. He would he would go here, sort of thing. It's the centre of the cloth where Rama and Ravana come t- come together. And here's the the monkey army that's uh, helping helping Rama. Now another very important uh, category of textile that was traded to Southeast Asia is the patola. If any of you were here at Karen Selk's lecture last night, she mentioned the. Um, she spoke a lot about the patola being made in um, in Parton by the Salvi family. Now, this piece of which this is just a, a detail, this lion and elephant design is something that was made only for export to Indonesia. It wasn't used in India itself, and you can see this is a, a poor old photo, but it does show um, how such a cloth might be used. It's hanging up behind a, a noble family in, um, in Java in the 1920s, and probably some, some, special, some special occasion. And this is typical of the sort of affluent families that could afford pieces like this and that would keep them as, as heirlooms. Now, the patola, as Karen mentioned last night, are very important in all sorts of uh, ways in India itself, but there are several um, varieties of patola that are only made for export. And in Indonesia, they almost took on uh, magical qualities, as a lot of these heirloom textiles did, and were considered to have um, supernatural powers. Um, They were protective. If somebody had mental health problems, a little bit would be burned, and ash from the patola would be smeared on their forehead. And this sort of level of reverence was accorded these these textiles, partly um, because they were exotic imports and could only be had very rarely, partly because I think they realized that these were incredibly difficult textiles to make and they revered the the skill that went into them. This is another um, rather badly uh, put together photograph because the, the thing is too long to photograph. Um, this type of patola with the four huge elephants, is a very special um, export piece, which again was made only for export to Indonesia and especially was found in islands like Flores, where a few still survive and must have been used for um, rituals um, rather like the long tree pieces from from, um, the the block-printed ones. Other types of patola are less elaborate, like the the piece on the right, again, is is a pattern... Uh, made only for export. Uh, and on the left, you can see um, a, a patola uh, on the on the right-hand side of the left-hand picture um, is a, an Indian patola in Bali next to, which was kept by a maker of the grinsing cloth on the, on the left, which is the, the only other uh, double ikat um, cloth to be made in, um, in Asia. And it's obvious that the patola... Um, influenced the production of these uh, grinsing in Bali, which themselves have very um, uh, mystical and uh, important ritual uses. The patola designs with this sort of geometric square uh, rhomboid pattern had huge influence on local uh, textiles throughout Indonesia. And so often you see them with this type of grid Design, which must must have come from uh, from the patola originally. This type of patola on the right is one that's made both for India itself and for Indonesia. And I, I don't know if you can see, but this uh, prince, this Javanese prince, is wearing a very natty pair of patola trousers, along with this wonderful batik 
the sort of loincloth. And even today, I saw in the paper not very long ago um, a coronation of a, of a Javanese ruler, and he was wearing patola as part of his, his special outfit. Now, Indian textiles, which might have been painted cottons, were exported to Thailand as well as Indonesia as early as about the 15th and 16th centuries uh, when we know that travellers report um, cloths in Indian style being worn at court. Now, these are not um, religious or ritual cloths. They're for courtly use. And indeed, these very elaborate designs were reserved only for courtly wear mostly as either sort of sarongs or for hangings and also just purely as gifts to give uh, important visitors. Now, these come from the Coromandel Coast, as do the um, chintzes for the Western market that we'll see shortly, but um, are done in a completely um, Thai-specific style, if you like. The Indian craftsmen knew exactly what the Thais wanted we don't know the mechanism by which the Thai patrons relayed their desires to the Indian craftsmen. Unlike the Western market stuff, we have all the East India Company records, etc., the letters saying, give us more trees or whatever. So we don't know exactly what the mechanism was between Thailand or Indonesia and India. But whatever it was, they certainly got it right because they're beautifully made, perhaps the finest of all these painted cottons, and very much in keeping with the Thai aesthetic of these sort of uh, flaming designs that you see on architecture and lacquerware, as well as these uh, textiles. Some of the Thai market pieces have uh, gold stamped over them. The one on the left is um, completely... The design is replicated in gold over each part of the design. Some of the Thai pieces also have these wonderful, very Buddhist-looking uh, figures like, like Thai, Thai Buddhas. Again, something that the Indian craftsmen would never in a million years do for their own use, but they knew exactly uh, how, to, how to pitch it, if you like, for the, for the Thai market. Even Japan um, started to import Indian uh, painted cottons. Uh, Indian chintz first came to, this is what I would call a chintz because it's, it's done not in, a, not in an Indian style, but it's in the sort of mordant dyed technique, but very much in a sort of um, export style. So Indian chintz first came to Japan with the Portuguese in the 16th century and uh, with the Dutch in the 17th and 18th centuries and also via Thailand as we, we just saw the Thai pieces and the J Japanese also took, um, took over some of them. Thailand actually traded directly with, with Japan um, so quite a few of these, uh, the pieces done for Japan came via, via Thailand. Now, this is an interesting piece because at first glance, it looks a bit like a sort of Western market hanging, which has been made into a Japanese garment, a short-sleeved kimono called a kosode. But in fact, if you look more carefully at the design, you can see that there are decidedly Japanese elements in it that you wouldn't find in a, in a Western piece, like these oval forms you get in all sorts of Japanese textiles and this wonderful great bamboo tree going up going up the center even these um, sort of hanging decoration you see in lacquer work of the of the 17th century you've been listening to part one of the cotton road 
In part two, Rosemary Krill will explore the trade in cottons that took place with Western markets and the craze for chintz, which combined British, Indian, and even Chinese elements into an exotic hybrid. Rosemary's lecture was recorded live at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October 24, 2007. For more information on Maywa or our podcasts, please visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.